Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. When the topic of health care comes up, pundits often discuss whether it's a privilege or a right. Later on, we'll find out how health care evolved in this country and how its evolution is still impacting today's debate on reforming the system. First, what's going on with the Affordable Care Act and how does it impact you? We'll hear from the head of Connecticut's health insurance marketplace, Access Health CT, and from the state health care advocate. They'll be here later in the show to answer our questions and yours. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now to update us on the latest developments in Washington, we're joined on the phone by Mary Agnes Carey, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Mary Agnes, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I'll start with uh, earlier this month when uh, President Trump announced he would stop paying a subsidy to ACA or Affordable Care Act insurers. It was called the cost sharing reduction. What is this subsidy and what happens if the payments don't continue, Mary Agnes? Well, there's actually uh, two subsidies involved with the health insurance, the Affordable Care Act, and it's important to know that one subsidy remains Uh, The subsidy that stays is the one that helps 8 out of 10 people who are enrolled in the ACA exchanges afford their premiums. That one stays in place. The one that you just mentioned, the cost-sharing subsidies, that helps people who make up to about $30,000 a year afford their out-of-pockets, their co-pays, their deductibles, and so on. And so, as you noted, President Trump said that he would no longer authorize federal payments to insurers to cover those cost-sharing subsidies, but they are required by law. So basically, for the rest of the year, insurers are on the hook to pay those subsidies, in a sense, to make sure that the people who qualify for them still have the lower out-of-pocket costs. And then going forward in 2018, many insurers anticipated that President Trump would take this step, and they've raised their premium rates by an average of 20% to accommodate for this. So they will continue. The beneficiaries who qualify for them will be held harmless, but we will see higher rates in 2018 because of that. Now, there's a Senate bill that was trying to address this uh, cost-sharing reduction subsidy. It's the Alexander Murray bill. What would that do? Right. It would do a variety of things. It would extend those cost-sharing subsidies for two years, but make sure that insurers who had raised their rates in anticipation of losing the subsidies, they couldn't double dip. They'd have to either return those as rebates to the federal government or to consumers. It would give states more flexibility to have some benefit design under the Affordable Care Act, but maintain those consumer protections we've all heard about, the essential health benefits, uh, things that have to be covered, no lifetime or annual limits, that kind of thing. And um, it also would allow everyone, not just people... Uh, up to age 30, but everyone to get a catastrophic plan. Sometimes these are called the copper plans, where you have very high co-pays and deductibles, but your premiums tend to be lower. So those would be opened up to everyone, and it would also restore about $100 million in money to, uh, to do outreach to get people to enroll in the Affordable Care Act 
and to um, help fund these things called assisters and navigators that actually sit down with you to help you enroll and then also the national advertising effort. So it would make many major steps for the Affordable Care Act. And what is President Trump's feeling on this bill, Mary Agnes? He's not really digging it. Um, He's not really fond of the bill. He has given mixed messages. He was on the Hill on Tuesday, and he had lunch with the Senate Republicans. And he didn't really give them an indication of whether he wants any kind of legislation to pass on the Affordable Care Act. His message has really been on taxes. But when you look at Capitol Hill and you look at where Republicans are, especially in the House, uh, Paul Ryan, who's the Speaker of the House, has said, we really want the message to focus on repeal and replace. We don't want these interim steps. So the thought is, even if the bill could pass the Senate, and that's in question whether it would even get to the floor, probably wouldn't pass the House. The president probably wouldn't sign it. And Mitch McConnell, who's the Senate Majority Leader in the House, and he controls what gets on the floor, he's saying, I'm not going to put anything on the floor until I know the president would sign it. So it's really in a holding pattern. Mary Agnes carries on the phone with a senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News. We're getting the latest on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, one of the reasons we're doing the show today, uh, next week, uh, enrollment period for the exchanges under the Affordable Care Act begins. Uh, now, we're talking about the subsidy issues, Mary Agnes, but there are other uh, policy changes or new rules that President Trump has uh, rolled out related to the Affordable Care Act. Can we walk? Can you walk us through some of those, including this idea of association health plans? Right. Uh, a few weeks ago, the president directed several federal agencies to look at the current rules under their jurisdiction that stop these things called association health plans, which would allow groups of individuals, maybe restaurant owners or people that are in a particular trade group, to come together to basically get their own health insurance plans and sell them across state lines, not have to follow particular state regulations. And the thought is that that particular move would allow plans that were less generous, less comprehensive than the Affordable Care Act to be sold. So he's asked his agencies to renew that. Another thing he did was make changes in contraceptive coverage under the Affordable Care Act. He did that through executive order. Uh, Basically, what it would do is allow employers more flexibility to say they have a moral objection against offering birth control to their workers. This has been a bone of contention, various lawsuits that have gone on since the Affordable Care Act came into law. And basically what we're seeing here is the president waited for months for Republicans in Congress to repeal the Affordable Care Act. As we know, that didn't happen. So what he's doing is using his executive powers to change the contraception coverage, to redirect his agencies to look at these things called association health plans. He's made his executive order to stop the cost-sharing subsidies. So he's using everything that he can to weaken the Affordable Care Act because Congress has been so far, Republicans in Congress rather, have not been successful in their efforts to repeal and replace. It's interesting you mention uh, a lot of this chipping away at the ACA uh, with the notion that we hear from President Trump and those who don't support the Affordable Care Act that this uh, uh, that this has caused uh, premiums to double uh, even uh, before President Trump was in office and that the market is not stable. But what do these actions do to the entire marketplace, Mary Agnes? It throws in more uncertainty. All business hates uncertainty. Insurers in particular hate uncertainty. 
And so if you are signaling, you being the administration, you're signaling to your federal agencies, uh, let's look at things like uh, you know, a, a plan that's not as comprehensive, that doesn't have to follow state regulation, that doesn't have to follow the regulations of the Affordable Care Act, may not have individual mandates or employer mandates. Insurers may be allowed to rate uh, for pre-existing conditions, this kind of thing. I mean, it just, it just kind of really shakes up the table, if you will. And an important thing to think about here as you look at the scope of health insurance in the country, the vast majority of people get health insurance either through their jobs, through the Medicare program, or through the Medicaid program. The Affordable Care Act exchanges, you have about 10 million people who are enrolled there, and you have another big chunk, maybe around 14, 15 million people who've benefited from the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. But most of us get insurance in other places. So it's really quite extraordinary when you look at all the attention paid to the Affordable Care Act. Really, it's about 3% of the insured population that is covered by this law. I mentioned open enrollment begins next week. Uh, This, too, has been trimmed significantly since the start of the ACA in terms of how long people have to choose the right plan for themselves. That's a great point to bring up because in prior years, open enrollment was open from November the 1st until January 31st. This year, it stops December 15th. And not only is the enrollment period shorter, but as we discussed earlier, there's less money for the enrollment efforts, and there's going to be less money for the advertising efforts. So people may be hearing far less about open enrollment this year on the airwaves, in print advertising, that sort of thing, and then also in these enrollment uh, events. I have covered these. I'm based in Washington, D.C., and I've covered them here And they've been incredibly extensive in past years where you would go to a community center on a Saturday and it would be packed with people who have been uh, trained and they've been tested to help you enroll in the Affordable Care Act. A lot of that is funded by the federal government. With that rollback, you might see fewer events in your community. So if you are interested in the Affordable Care Act, if you're currently enrolled in it, you're thinking about it this year, it's really important for you to get started as early as you can and seek out help in your community if you need it. On the flip side, we're hearing uh, from people, Mary Agnes, that you know uh, this process has been around now for several years and the federal government doesn't need to spend as much money marketing it. Right. That's certainly one of the narratives that we hear, in particular from opponents of the Affordable Care Act. They say exactly what you've just said. You're in the fifth year. People know about it. It's a small part of the insured universe. And so we don't need to spend the kind of money on advertising that you're talking about. And secondly, as the uh, Trump administration looked at the federal funding for the enrollment for the assisters and the navigators, they felt that some of those organizations weren't as effective as they could be, and they wanted to pare back the funding. But those uh, organizations said, in turn, while we may look like we don't sign up as many people as you would like. The point of it is we educate people, and sometimes they get out there, they sign up on healthcare.gov after they've met with us. Maybe they go to a local uh, insurance broker, which is certainly a way you can sign up for the healthcare law. But the navigators and the sisters have been arguing that they still have an incredibly important public need, even if the numbers of folks that they actually signed up weren't there. But to your point, you're right. There are those who say, now, wait a minute, we've invested so heavily in this. People know what it is, they know where to get it, and we'll be fine this year. Hmm. What happens next? What's the latest on when this vote on the Alexander Murray bill will be happening in Congress? Well, 
that's a great question because there really isn't a scheduled vote. Even though you have 12 Republicans who supported this bill when it was unveiled last week, and there are 48 Democrats, which we can assume would probably vote for it, 48 and 12 is 60. That's the magic number in the Senate to avoid a filibuster. So proponents of the bill, including Chuck Schumer, who's the Democratic leader in the Senate, has been saying to Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, we have 60 votes, get it to the floor. Mitch McConnell has said that he doesn't want to bring anything to the floor until he knows what the president will sign. So things are in a holding pattern. There doesn't seem to be any urgency. But the next thing to watch is in December, because on December 8th, the current funding bill for the government expires, and there's uh, some speculation that Democrats may say, in order to continue funding for the government, we are going to insist on a vote for this bill, for the Alexander Murray bill on the floor, so we could have some high drama in about a month. Mm. Doesn't give people confidence who are trying to figure out their plan today, Mary Agnes, if this is uh, delayed until December. It doesn't, but if you think about it, the rates are already published. They came out yesterday. So open enrollment is going to open as planned. If you qualify for the premium subsidy, that is still there. If you qualify for the cost-sharing subsidy, that still remains. It's all still there. So if you are a beneficiary now of the Affordable Care Act, you're thinking about enrolling, you can still do all these things. This action on Capitol Hill wouldn't necessarily have anything to do, it wouldn't, it wouldn't affect enrollment for the 2018 plan year. It's for the out years now that we're looking at. So I would say to folks, of course, keep your eye on Capitol Hill, pay attention to what's happening, but this is not going to affect you as you enroll for 2018, so you should proceed as you would. And if they miss that December 15th deadline, uh, will they see a fine? Will there be any um, other process to allow them to keep enrolling? They do have special enrollment periods, and they're determined by a variety of factors that you can find on healthcare.gov. But one interesting thing this year that Michelle Andrews, who writes for Kaiser Health News, mentioned earlier this week on a column, is if your insurer left your marketplace for 2018, if they withdrew, you may qualify for additional time to enroll. So that's something for people to look into. But if you don't qualify for a special enrollment period and you don't enroll, you still face that individual mandate penalty, which is, uh, for an individual, $695 or, I think, 2.5% of income, whichever is greater. You could be assessed that on your 2018 tax reform. And let's remember, if you don't enroll in insurance, something happens to you, you could be on the hook for that bill. So there's uh, many things that await you if you don't enroll in insurance, in health insurance, but on the counterpoint, I've talked to people, many reporters have talked to people over the the last five years of the Affordable Care Act who have said, I really want to do this, but I can't afford it. Uh, We have to remember that in that individual market, about half of the individual market is buying on on the exchanges and the Affordable Care Act, and eight out of ten of those folks get the subsidy. You still have another seven million people who buy uh, in the Affordable Care, on the Affordable Care Act exchanges, rather, but they don't qualify for those premium subsidies. So those people are really getting hit with these 20% and higher price bumps, and they get no assistance. And so a lot of people are sitting there looking at the numbers, trying to figure out whether they can afford health insurance. Mm. One more question for you, uh, Mary Agnes, before we go to break. And do you anticipate any other new rules coming down from the President Trump administration related to health care? I think he's hit all the key points 
for 2018 for you know for the, the the current things that he could currently do on all the regulations that he's issued, but he might continue to push for um, if he can do it through the regulatory process weakening of the individual mandate which we've just discussed. There's also an employer mandate that requires most employers with 50 or more workers to provide coverage. And uh, there's also could be some guidance out of the Department of Health and Human Services and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services that oversee Medicaid that might give greater flexibility in the Medicaid program that intersects with the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act, which some critics are looking at this early and saying it could weaken it. So I think that for, for uh, particularly us reporters of Washington who follow health care, but looking at what comes out of the regulatory directives from the administration is going to be incredibly important to watch. Mary Agnes Carey is a senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News. We'll be tweeting out some links at where we live uh, to the work that uh, Mary Agnes and her colleagues are, are doing on health care. Uh, Mary Agnes, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How will political maneuvering in Washington around the future of the Affordable Care Act impact Connecticut residents? We'll have more after the break with the CEO of Access Health CT, also the Connecticut health care advocate. And you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. President Trump has cut the enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act exchanges considerably. Enrollment starts next week and runs until December 15th. But for states with individual exchanges like Connecticut, you'll have a bit more time to choose a health insurance plan. Now, do you buy coverage on the insurance exchange under the Affordable Care Act? What questions do you have? We want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, to tell us more about the impact here in Connecticut. We're joined on the phone by Jim Wadley, CEO of Access Health CT. It's Connecticut's health insurance marketplace. Jim, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so just to recap, how many Connecticut residents have been using the exchange uh, over the last five years? Over, well, that, that number is actually quite large. Uh, don't forget, Access Health Connecticut is the no wrong door for the state of Connecticut's uh, Medicaid services as well. And so actually, we just ran a report about last week, and we have had close to 2 million Connecticut residents uh, come through our website over the last five years. Now, I mentioned enrollment. Tell us how the enrollment period is different here in Connecticut. So the enrollment period in Connecticut is uh, very close to what's going on at, at the federal level. Instead of December 15th, though, we have chosen to extend our open enrollment to December 22nd. So give Connecticut residents another week to be able to enroll. Uh, we've heard from um, our uh, reporter, our business reporter, Harriet Jones, uh, with her, some of the stories that she's done. You know, when we look at the history of signing on for a plan under these exchanges, you used to have four months to figure it out. Now we're down to seven weeks. Do you anticipate this being a problem? <laughs> The short answer to your question is yes. Uh, so what are you going to yes, do about it? it? <laughs> and so we've done a lot. Uh, we're trying a lot of new things right now. And, and so taking uh, in action, what I would uh, remind our listener, your listeners is when in year number one, open enrollment was actually six months long. And so that's how far we've come over the last five years. 
we're now down to seven weeks or so. And so what we've done is uh, we've done a number of things. So first and foremost, we know that about half of our customers uh, come to us via our website. And so we've made a lot of changes uh, to help our customers be able to navigate our website uh, more effectively. Some of those changes being additional tools to help them uh, pick uh, plans that are better for their family's needs. Uh, some of them have been changes on some of the biggest hitters where uh, you'd be surprised the number of questions we get on what is actually my income. Uh, and so we can talk about that if you'd like a little bit later. Uh, so that's what we've made some changes on our, our website. Uh, on the other flip side of that, we know that half of our, the other half of our customers are coming in through our call center. And, and so as you can imagine, uh, squeezing uh, three months down into about seven weeks is going to be very challenging for us to be able to answer all of those phone calls uh, in the same period of time. So what we've done is we have spread out around the state of Connecticut. We've opened up 10 enrollment uh, locations around uh, Connecticut, and you can find all of those locations on our website at accesshealthct.com, as well as we are uh, hosting five enrollment fairs uh, on uh, Saturdays around the state as well that'll be different than those locations. So what we've really tried to do is, is spread our organization out uh, as, as broadly and as quickly as we can over those seven weeks to help people answer the questions that we expect that they'll have. Now, for some of our listeners who may be looking at uh, buying a plan on the exchange for the first time, can you break it down for us of how the plans are organized, Jim? And we should probably talk about the insurers that participate. Sure. Let's start with the easier question first, and that is uh, right now we have two insurers participating on the exchange. Those are Anthem, Blue Cross, and Blue Shield, and uh, Connecticut. Uh, Benefits Inc. out of uh, both of them are, are, are located in Connecticut. So we're really excited to have those strong carriers on our marketplace. Now, as we uh, go to the first part of your question around uh, the plan designs, they are all set up uh, by metal tier. And that metal tier uh, equates to a coverage level for, uh, for customers. And, and we can talk about that if you'd like as well. But that, those metal tiers start at uh, bronze plans, silver plans, and gold plans for uh, 2018. And really how those plans translate, uh, it, it correlates to the amount of insurance coverage that you are looking for your carrier uh, to cover. So a cheaper plan being a bronze plan would cover uh, less insurance and uh, while cheaper would would potentially have customers uh, being uh, responsible for more payments if they were to get sick. Whereas on a gold plan, a health insurer would cover more and uh, customers would be responsible for less. But those plans would be a little bit more expensive. Well, the reason I wanted you to break it down for us, Jim, is earlier we were talking about uh, the Trump administration ending the cost-sharing uh, reduction payments that can help uh, with some premiums for low-income uh, residents. So um, with that in mind, I believe uh, the Connecticut had uh, worked out if uh, the cost-sharing reduction wasn't included, what the rates would be. So what, in terms of that, uh, what are the costs going to look like for Connecticut consumers? Because you guys thought ahead and looked at this. So, uh, so first, out of uh, 
I'll give some kudos to uh, the governor and lieutenant governor and our board, as well as um, insurance commissioner uh, Katie Wade for their leadership through this process. That rates and um, rate determinations are a function of the executive branch uh, for Connecticut. So uh, through a lot of collaboration and discussion, they were all helping to, to drive this. So I want to make sure everyone understood the active role that they all played through this process. Now, that being said, uh, through that, what uh, the decision was made was to build those cost-sharing rates into uh, silver plans, on-exchange silver plans, uh, so that, uh, like your previous uh, um, interviewee was talking about uh, from Kaiser, though that then means everyone in Connecticut still who would qualify for a cost-sharing reduction will still re- still receive those. Now, you had also talked about uh, rates. Uh, that's hard to say because each person is going to have their own little nuance. What I can say is rates are determined by your income level, your family size, uh, the county that you live in, and your age. And so through that process, what we have seen, and if, if listeners uh, uh, want some more information, uh, we had uh, one of our staff members do a very comprehensive overview of, uh, for both on and off exchange with the impact of these cost sharing reductions, and it is they can find that on our website. Uh, but that being said, what we are seeing uh, is that uh, a number of our customers may actually be seeing their rates go down. A number of our customers may actually be seeing their rates stay very similar to what they were last year. And uh, like uh, 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 the lady from Kaiser had said, the people that are going to bear the brunt of a number of these changes are the, in Connecticut, the 25% of our customers who receive no financial help. And, and so that is who we are really focused. We're focused on everyone, but we want to make sure through this process that we find the best plan, um, whether it be on or off exchange for those customers as well. Today, we're talking about the Affordable Care Act. Uh, on the phone with us, Jim Wadley, CEO of Access Health CT. It's Connecticut's health insurance marketplace. Enrollment uh, on the exchange begins next week. If you have a question, join the conversation, 860-275-7266. In studio with us is Ted Doolittle, the health care advocate for the state of Connecticut. Ted, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. It's great to be here. Anything you want to add related to uh, the rates that uh, Connecticut consumers will be seeing with some of these uh, changes that we've been talking about, including uh, whether or not that subsidy will exist? Yes, actually, and thanks for the chance. Um, the the uh, Jim's absolutely right that the leadership in Connecticut deserves credit for really trying to blunt the impact of these uh, uh, CSRs or cost-sharing reductions going away. And they've done that, but it, but the but the uh, way that we're handling it does add complexity. Already, the ACA is too complex, and it adds another layer of complexity. That's why I want to take this opportunity to strongly recommend for people, especially people that aren't getting any financial uh, uh, subsidies, you sh- really should go on the exchange, shop around, but you should also reach out specifically to a certified broker because for many families. Now, unfortunately, the cheapest plan, the best deal, is going to be an off-exchange plan. So you need now to to be very nimble as a consumer and understand that you can't just look on the exchange if you're not getting uh, uh, 
support, you also need to look off Exchange, and there's expert help available. If you go on Jim's web- website and go to the Get Help button and go uh, find a certified broker, they're listed there by towns. I strongly encourage people who uh, find out they're not going to be getting subsidies to get that expert help so they can look on exchange and off exchange for the best plan for themselves and their family. And that's a positive change. I understand that insurance carriers have agreed to pay these broker fees so that they're able to get that information out. Well, they are going to. I don't know if it was an agreement or not, but certainly the Access Health Board uh, required them to, to, to do so. The insurance plans in the state certainly have been supportive and, and great. I don't want to uh, indicate otherwise, but, but, uh, but, but they're required to pay the brokers. And we also talked about the Alexander Murray bill uh, that's happening in Congress where uh, they are trying to restore the subsidies. But what about the other coverage uh, issues? What else in that bill um, are you uh, positive about, Ted? What are some concerns that you may have? So I, I am supportive of the Alexander Murray effort because it reinstalls the uh, cost-sharing reductions, and that takes a little bit of the complexity out that I, that I referred to. Um, so uh, that's very positive. Um, I think it is a, a modest but positive uh, uh, bill. I wanted to take a call now. Uh, Stephen is calling. Uh, Stephen, you have a question? Go ahead. Good, mor- good morning, and thanks for taking my call. Uh, my wife is a double uh, breast cancer survivor, and our we went for a silver plan last year, and uh, we were quoted a price of somewhere in the eight hundred dollar a month range. And with the federal sub or the state subsidies, I'm not sure if they're federal or state. Uh, we were paying two hundred and sixty three dollars a month. And that really included uh, not a very comprehensive coverage, a lot of out of pocket costs. But what we were not told, and what I found out from my tax uh, man at the end of the year, was that that subsidy is taxable income. So that was added right to the bottom of line of what I earned in 2016. So I'm wondering, does that stay the same? And why isn't that told to the uh, to the customers? that, you know, you're going to be responsible for paying taxes on what we subsidize you. I'll let uh, I'll take, And I'll take my, uh, I'll take the answer off the air. I thank you so much for taking my call. Love th- your show. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Ted, can you help Stephen out? First, let me just say, once again, too complicated. Yeah. Too complicated, lots of surprises. That's why, at the end of the day, we need to get this country to a more simple plan that has true universal coverage. With respect to Steve's particular question about the tax treatment, I really am not 100% sure. I imagine from his story that he, he got uh, good advice. But uh, beyond the comment that uh, uh, this is a complicated situation and it could be made much simpler with a better, more simplified law, the ACA is a step forward, but it's too complex. Um, that's where I'd have to leave my answer. And I, 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 if Steve wants further information, he can certainly call the Office of the Healthcare Advocate, and we'll try to get him that specific information. Before we get to another call, I wanted to go back to something we heard regarding um, per the president's executive order to allow association health plans. Uh, Jim Wadley, CEO of Access Health CT, um, how would that impact uh, state exchanges? So that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> we're still doing a lot of research right now around what those are and uh they what i have been able to find out is they were very popular during the 80s and 90s 
but then created a lot of risk uh, that put a lot of pressure on state, on a national level, state insurance commissioners uh, because of uh, the lack of reserves to be able to pay for uh, claim costs. And so I think uh, there is uh, a precedence that took place uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago that uh, a lot of people will be watching to see how what the, what could be learned from that. So I think there's more to come from that. But uh, Lucy, can I can I uh, quickly add, add a couple things that Steve had had sure. um, brought up? So Steve had mentioned whether they were federal or state subsidies. <clears throat> um, they are federal subsidies. The state of Connecticut does not um, weigh in on with any subsidies for Access Health Connecticut or Connecticut residents as they pertain to uh, um, as they pertain to healthcare coverage. Steve is the first. Steve, first, let me say I hope that uh, you and your wife are uh, are doing well, uh, and I'm glad that you did have healthcare coverage to be able to afford uh, all of the, the the I'm sure very stressful things that took place in your life. Uh, finally, I'd say Steve's uh, analogy of his uh, his accountant saying that tax credits were taxable income. That's actually the first time I've heard that. And so I will be doing some research. And and as Ted had said, I'd encourage you to reach out to Ted um, if you want, or you can reach out to myself. And, and I'm going to dig in a little bit more because that's the first time that I've heard anyone say that, that that's how uh, tax credits were treated. Uh, Ted Doolittle, uh, we were talking about these association health plans. Uh, what's your take on that? So my take on that is kind of strongly negative, Lucy, and here's why. I have a a long career before I took over this office as an anti-fraud official with uh, the agency that runs Medicare and Medicaid. There's a long history of problems with these association uh, health plans. Um, uh, Jim alluded to it, but we're talking about when you buy a plan with Connecticare, it's managed by Katie Wade over at the at the insurance department. She guarantees that they have enough money to play, pay this year's claims. Even if the company goes belly up, those claims are going to get paid. The association health plans are outside of that regulatory framework. They might not have enough money. And in the past, those plans, in fact, have gone bust. People are sick. They go to the doctor and the claim's not paid. It's denied. So, And then there also have been management problems where people are uh, uh, loosely regulated. People are using company funds for personal uh, luxurious lifestyles and so forth. So I'm very concerned about the uh, association health plans. I will also say I think it's really from the perspective of, of what they're trying to accomplish, which is giving companies options. Um, uh, to, to get coverage outside the exchange, they already can do that. They already can get what's called a self-funded plan, and then they can insure themselves with a stop loss so that if uh, if it's a small employer and somebody gets cancer, they have an insurance above their own self-funded plan. So I don't think a lot of people are going to be rushing to, to, to join these, A. And then B, I think it's dangerous and that it opens up fraud and abuse. Uh, Amy's calling from Unionville. Amy, you have a couple of minutes. Go ahead with your question. I want to know what you're going to do to improve your verification process so self-employed people aren't discriminated against. All right, Amy. Um, Jim Wadley is on the phone with us, the CEO of Access Health CT. Could you help uh, Amy with that question, Jim? Uh, good morning, Amy. Uh, yes, we have. <laughs> Amy, if you heard my staff meeting <clears throat> on Monday, you'd, you'd know how passionate I am uh, about that. So Ted, I'm going to pile on a little bit about uh, Ted. 
one of the things that, uh, and actually first I'm going to say, I, I, I apologize that you feel that you are being discriminated against by our organization. That is no way a representation of how we want our organization uh, working with anyone around Connecticut. And, and we are very passionate about our, our level of customer service. So that being said, we continue to work through ways for us to be able to uh, improve our verification process. Uh, Ted is right. It's very, there are a number of items that are very confusing uh, that are required by the federal government in order for us to process, uh, to go through this process. We continue to improve that. We uh, have done a tremendous amount of additional training, both internally to our organization, with our uh, brokers, with all of our certified application counselors this year, as well as uh, with our vendors to improve how we are handling the verification process. Do I think it'll be perfect? No, but I, I want you to know, and I'm sure this is no, uh, no, no solace for that, that it is probably number one on my area that we are looking to continue to improve on uh, uh, over the future. Jim, so, uh, since uh, Amy is still on the line, is there a number that you can give her where she could call if she's having issues regarding coverage and verifying that she's uh, self-employed? Uh, so Amy can call our call center. Our call center is 1-855-805-4325. And Amy, if you do not um, uh, get the answer that you're looking for at the call center, uh, our, our call center reps ha are instructed. There is an escalation process that they can um, work, work their way uh, to some additional help for you by their supervisor, which is a change with a new call center vendor that we have uh, have, have brought on uh, this year. So there's a lot of new additional things that we're looking to be able to help. And, and I encourage you to leverage that if, if, if you need extra help. I want to thank uh, Jim Wadley. Thank you, CEO of Access Health CT, Connecticut's health insurance marketplace. Uh, before we head to break, I did want to ask a Ted Doolittle, healthcare advocate for the state of Connecticut, uh, for uh, Connecticut residents who uh, depend on Medicaid, uh, what is the what can they expect considering that there are budget cuts expected from the state? Wow, that's a great question. And again, um, I wish I could have a, a, a happier answer. Um, uh, the, I haven't uh, unpacked the budget that just got voted on last night uh, uh, as closely as I'd like. I suspect that there are some people that are going to be uh, losing Medicaid. Those people really should and need to be uh, alert and go on um, and try to get uh, onto the Access Health website and get uh, specific coaching. Most of them will be eligible for good coverage on the exchange if they can be alert enough to find it. That's my concern. Not that they're not eligible for assistance on the exchange, because most of them will be, but that they're not going to be able to understand where they need to go in time to to uh, to get coverage. For someone who uh, relies on Medicaid and is listening, is there a number that you can give if they need help through the OHA, your office? Absolutely. Our main number is 860 331 2440. Again, that's 860-331-2440. And we do work closely with Jim's teams uh, on a regular basis. We have folks that do assist uh, with Access Health, and so we work hand-in-hand -hand with them. We're out of time, unfortunately, but I want to thank Ted Doolittle, Connecticut healthcare advocate, for coming on the show. We'd like to have you back uh, soon as we continue to, to see what happens with uh, health insurance in this country, including what we can do to drive down costs. Thank you, Ted. Thanks so much. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Up next, some history on how healthcare developed in this country. How did health insurance plans become something offered by employers? As a country, are we moving away from the idea that health insurance is a privilege? Join the conversation. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So how did healthcare evolve in this country? Who better to ask than a professor of history at Stony Brook University? Nancy Toms is on the phone with us. She specializes in history of medicine. Nancy, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Our system is complex. How did we end up here? We were focusing a lot on on the Affordable Care Act and the exchanges, but for people who rely on employer-based insurance, uh, how did the system get set up this way? Well, I have to say, after listening to the first two segments, it's like watching a, a train wreck or the Titanic rearranging uh, the deck chairs. Uh, why do we have such a, a complex and frustrating system? You do have to look at, at the past to see choices that were made 50, 75 years ago. Um, we purposefully have made our healthcare system complicated, our insurance complicated, because as a country, we think there's some benefit from testing people. It's almost like a Darwinian process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be nimble. I was struck by that word in the, the earlier uh, conversation. And that goes back to the origin of our private insurance as employer-based. The system that we first got was basically if you were a really top-flight employee, if you were seen as valuable by your employer, you were given uh, hospital insurance. It starts out with coverage um, for uh, appendectomy, for major surgery. Um, In the 1920s, 1930s, and this idea of uh, service benefit, you may hear that phrase if you're um, um, employed, this is a service benefit. Uh, we want you to come work for the state of New York or the state of Connecticut or IBM. We're going to give you insurance. Um, so the majority of Americans got covered by around 1960 through big employers. Um, the other piece of it is labor unions got into the, the action during World War II, they saw professionals and executives getting this service benefit, and they said, hey, us too. Um, so big unions, the, the um, uh, automobile industry uh, said, okay, we're going to bargain for this um, as, as part of what we get for our members. So we start out as healthcare is a privilege that you get because you're a desirable employee. Of course, the problem with that is going to be pretty obvious. When you retire, there goes your insurance. And also, if you look at the history of employment in this country, there are a lot of small employers. What about self-employed people? And and you, in your earlier segment, it's so clear that the people who don't fit and who then get left out are people who work for companies with less than 50 employees or who are mm-hmm. self-employed. So we've adopted a system that kind of punishes people mm-hmm. who don't get, uh, get one of, of 
a particular kind of, of job package. So we know uh, there are several European countries that have universal coverage. How did we get to such different ends? Well, we, we have in the United States a mixed system. So uh, what I said about most people getting covered by their employers by 1960, um, the problems got fixed with uh, governmental-supported programs, Medicare and Medicaid, in 1965. So we, we eventually get to a system where we cover, oh, maybe um, 80 to, to 85%. If you look at uh, Western European countries, also capitalist, also entrepreneurial, also part of uh, the modern world. With World War II, they take a different direction. Uh, a lot of them, again, I'm generalizing because they have different histories, but they have patterns of uh, employer-based or other kinds of, of uh, insurance um, based with particular communities like Roman Catholics or Protestants. Those systems are there before World War II. The war devastates so many Western European nations that after the war, they have an enormous rebuilding process. And it's in that rebuilding phase that you see their governments deciding to kick up the, the coverage and to adopt universal healthcare as as a principle in in the reconstruction of their countries. We don't do that. We yes, we're in World War II. Yes, we have have many soldiers uh give up their lives, but we don't have our cities devastated with uh you know the exception of Honolulu and Pearl Harbor. We don't have that catastrophic um uh downfall and we don't have the same pressure to rebuild. So, in fact, after World War II, we basically doubled down on the private insurance option. Now, you talk uh, with a lot of Europeans. What do they think of our system? They think we're crazy. Um, and I've, I've been spending a lot of time in Europe. I find suddenly that I'm popular because I write about uh, American health care and, and its uh, its evolution. They want me to come there to tell them how to avoid Americanization. That's mm-hmm. the word they use. And what, what they hear Americanization is, healthcare is a privilege and not a right. Healthcare is something you need to make complicated and impossible. Um, healthcare is something you have to advertise. They really hate direct-to-consumer advertising. They don't want that. They don't want doctors and hospitals obsessed with their bottom lines, mm-hmm. which is essentially our system has also created a, uh, you know, what it means to be market-based is to try to figure out how much the market can bear. So they want none of it. Uh, There are some aspects of the American um, being able to give higher-end treatments uh, that that there's some appeal, but overall, our idea of healthcare is a privilege. Mm -hmm. They want nothing of it. They see this as a sign of American backwardness and regression, and that we are we're shooting ourselves in our, our, our feet. Nancy, um, uh, we, ter- just, we just have a couple minutes to go. Sure. We hear sure. people mention single-payer system in this country. Is that ever going to be a possibility with the political strength of the insurance industry? Uh, no. At, at this point, um, I'm, again, I'm sympathetic to the idea. Uh, I think getting there in one fell swoop very difficult because of the power of that particular industry. Um, you have to eradicate... 
um, a, a, a major pillar of our financial um, industry, and they don't want to be eliminated. Uh, 30% of our healthcare dollar goes to uh, subsidized insurance companies. Um, they, they don't want to go away. I asked you about a um, single-payer system. Do you think Americans will get away from this notion that health care is a uh, privilege and not a right? Yes. And mm-hmm. one of uh, if there's any upside to the civil war that we're currently having over health care in this country, it's that the discussion I've seen a remarkable shift uh, even in the last five years um, over your average American understanding that um, the way we've set things up is is not in the best interests of the country. Um, the Pew Typology Studies just published a, a new study where they looked at uh, in-depth uh, political um, thinking, um, and I was surprised among uh, some factions of Republicans, those who are most entrepreneurial and global in their point of view, that the um, a significant number of them also think health care should be a right. Um, so they're coming more into line with conservatives in Western Europe who see this endless fighting over health care as detrimental to economic growth. I want to thank Nancy Toms, professor of history at Stony Brook University. She specializes in history of medicine. Uh, Thank you for that snapshot, uh, Nancy. It's good to get some insight on how we got here. Thanks. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to WMPR intern Sarah Bly. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. If you have questions about today's show, you can email where we live at WMPR.org. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.